Years from now, when we look back at the small details that symbolize 2020 and the year of quarantine, what will stick out for you? What object or sound will send you back into a Proustian reverie? For me, it's this sound. Along with Zoom, this year Slack became our office. And yet despite the pandemic making a workplace tool like Slack an essential part of our lives, the company kind of stalled out. I mean, just look at their stocks. Zoom's has almost quadrupled during the pandemic. Slack has been pretty flat. That was until last week when reports first came out that Salesforce was going to buy it. And this week, the deal was announced, and it was big. $27 billion big. But while that's a nice outcome, and you can argue one way or the other about whether Salesforce overpaid, it also feels, I don't know, like a little bit of a disappointment. Slack could have been the next Microsoft if it played its cards right. Not just another notch in Benioff's belt. This is Tom Dutton, and on this week of the Informations 411, Corey Weinberg talks to Kevin McLaughlin, our enterprise reporter, about the deal. Kevin deserves kudos a year ago for predicting that in 2020, Slack would be acquired. So kudos, Kevin. But he also breaks down to Corey why this deal represents a culmination of Benioff's dream of doing away with email. Then, in the second segment, I talk to Paris Martineau about Zoomers and Amazon. Why those woke, TikTokin, rose emoji Gen Zers love to hate on Amazon, and yet they remain some of their most loyal and reliable customers. As our official Gen Z correspondent, Paris spoke to people like Isabel Tolinar about this duality of man. There is more of a concerted effort to buy from like small small businesses, black-owned businesses, stuff like that. We, at the end of the day, we still need these random like household supplies that are just so much cheaper on there, you know, so much quicker to get. Especially with the pandemic, it's you, there's no desire to go out to the store. Ah, kids. They'll never be able to own homes. Anyway, that's segment two. First, Slackforce. Salesforce, the enterprise software giant, pulled off a massive acquisition this week. It bought Slack, the beloved and maligned work chat app that had gone public just over a year ago. Joining me to discuss this mega deal is Kevin McLaughlin, my colleague at The Information, who has been covering the pants off of this Slack Salesforce story. Uh, Kevin, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Corey. Um, I wanted to start a little bit chronologically because you had a really interesting story last week documenting Salesforce CEO, co-CEO Mark Benioff's kind of decade-long fascination with this idea of consumer enterprise, which Slack embodies. Um, and I'm curious if you could tell us the origin story of, of how Benioff kind of became interested in at least this, this idea. Yes, yes. So former Salesforce executives and people who've worked at the company have told me that sort of the genesis for what Salesforce initially was calling the social enterprise happened around 2008 when uh, Mark Benioff was a judge at a TechCrunch conference at which Yammer, a very hot startup at the time, presenting. Yeah, everyone remembers Yammer. That was one of the hot companies at the at the time. Well, that kind of put the seed in Benioff's mind that maybe Salesforce should do something similar. And so in 2009, they launched a product called Chatter, which was basically the same thing where uh, individuals and, and groups within companies could post messages to their colleagues, um, basically to replace the company-wide email and the group email. Um, not a real-time collaboration, but sort of an asynchronous type of collaboration that you see on Facebook. That was the big theme at Salesforce from about 2009 until about 2014 when the company 
stopped talking about it as much and sort of moved on to the next thing. Nothing, this grand strategy hasn't fully come to fruition yet. Right, the, the, the social enterprise, uh, actually Chatter did get uh, an enormous amount of interest and adoption early on, uh, so much so that a former Salesforce executive told me uh, the company was actually having trouble sort of keeping up with uh, the customer interest and inquiries in, in the product. Uh, but eventually the interest kind of tailed off Salesforce is a company that tends to, um, I don't want to say chase the latest hotness, but certainly is interested in being part of trends that are important to a large number of its customers. And that, and one of the trends that was absolutely becoming more important was embodied by Slack, essentially, right? Like, can you explain their rise a little bit? What made them unique within sort of the enterprise software sphere? Salesforce and Mark Benioff were very interested in sort of Slack's approach to uh, workplace collaboration. So where Yammer was an asynchronous type of collaboration and communication, Slack was all about connecting individuals and teams in real time. And another unique and interesting thing about Slack at the time was that its product was, there's a term in the enterprise software industry called land and expand. And what that means is groups of employees within companies or departments within companies will uh, download a product and start trying it out. And sometimes they like it so much that they'll just start recommending it to their colleagues in other departments. And so this ability, Slack's ability to become popular and to spread via word of mouth definitely caught Mark Benioff's attention and Salesforce's attention. So it wasn't you know, super surprising to see Slack be acquired by Salesforce. In fact, uh, I heard after we filed our report last week, I heard from another former Salesforce executive that uh, Salesforce talked about acquiring Slack before their IPO last June. And then this isn't a surprise for a company like Salesforce, which is, it's been acquisitive over its tenure. It is, was linked years ago to a potential acquisition of Twitter. You know, like you said, Mark Benioff likes to chase the hot thing. As soon as the deal was announced, $27.7 billion of cash and stock, it was met with some skepticism and investors don't seem to like the deal necessarily. And I, I've, could you explain sort of some of that, that skepticism? I think that, you know, obviously part of the reason is the price tag. Um, 27.7 billion is somewhere around 50% premium from where Slack was trading before the reports of the acquisition first broke. Um, and I, I do think that, uh, Another reason is Slack, uh, despite being very popular with the companies that use it, has had trouble capturing that buzz and turning it into actual revenue growth. Right. Their revenue growth hasn't been bad. I mean, they've grown at least 49% in each of the three quarters. So not too shabby, but certainly nowhere near the 367% growth that Zoom just reported for its recent quarter. Going back to the point about you know the investor reaction, uh, I think it just comes down to uh, Slack wasn't exactly hitting it out of the park financially before the deal happened, and you know it's going to take some convincing, I think, over time uh, for Salesforce to to show the value from this deal. I mean, five years probably would be the time frame for that. Just you know pulling a number out of the air. Yeah, from a financial perspective, I can see the skepticism, but you talked also to Salesforce's number two, Brett Taylor, 
um, who talked about this deal as helping Salesforce uh, essentially create what he described as the operating system of a new way to work, which is, you know, very corporate speak, but I was hoping you could break down the Salesforce rationale for this deal. Once you can plug something like Slack into the Salesforce platform, which already includes things like customer management software, marketing, uh, customer service management, uh, and of course, more recently, things like Tableau, which is business analytics, and, and MuleSoft, which is about connecting different applications so that they can share data. The, once you connect something like Slack into the Salesforce platform, uh, you know, it remains to be seen, you know, if that's going to work or not, but, but certainly uh, it's a powerful platform and Salesforce also has uh, vast sales and marketing resources. And so I think what Brett Taylor was saying is that, you know, give us a chance to show the value here because we already have a, a pretty, you know, healthy uh, revenue engine that, that it is growing from our past acquisitions. And another point that, that Brett made was that, you know, there's a perception out there that Salesforce needs acquisitions to grow. And, and I don't think that's off base. Uh, the main sort of value proposition for Salesforce with Slack is that uh, being able to plug it in and Salesforce doesn't have a tool like Slack. It doesn't have that kind of real-time communications. Now Salesforce can build a deeper integration with itself and Slack that can enable those communications to happen more freely. Well, I guess, as they say, time will tell. Uh, so thanks, thanks so much for joining us, Kevin, and good job covering this deal. Thanks, Corey. So Paris, you decided to dig into one of the great contradictions of our lifetime, which is how can the woke generation of Gen Z, which has so many ethical concerns about Amazon, also be some of its most loyal customers. Let's get into just the overall scope of the, the Gen Z worldview. So, so why do you think, you know, the younger generation is particularly critical of, of Jeff Bezos and Amazon? Yeah, so as I spoke with Gen Zers, Zoomers, as they like to call themselves, kind of asked them about this. The thing, I heard the same sort of themes again and again. Amazon has too much power. Jeff Bezos is too rich. There's a myriad of labor issues um, being highlighted in its warehouses. A long litany of uh, concerns. Most, a lot of the people that I spoke with, um, even though they had these sort of concerns, admitted, yes, I have, I do use Amazon anyway. One 23-year-old woman, um, Isabel, who I spoke with, she said, I don't want to support Amazon, but I am just a single, you know, working class person. I can afford to live comfortably, but given the pandemic, in many ways, Amazon ends up being the most affordable and convenient and safest option for me to get essential goods to my house. She still pays for her Prime membership, even though she kind of detests everything that this company stands for. As I spoke to more and more people um, in kind of similar situations, this trend started to emerge, which was uh, Gen Z is definitely appears to be a lot more vocal about uh, criticism of Amazon, but much like all the other generations, has quite a difficult time actually... Uh, detaching itself from the company. Right. No, it's it's hard to quit them. What do you think 
I mean, when I think about the Gen Z demo, the first thing that comes to mind is that these guys were born into a social media and digital world. They really never conceived of the time before where something like free two-day shipping existed. Uh, I mean, how much of a part do you think that plays into it, that it was just kind of fait accompli that they were, you know, born into a system where Amazon is the, one of the most powerful e-commerce or just commerce institutions in their lives? Yeah, I think that that plays a major role in it. I mean, um, one of the experts that I spoke with when I was researching this piece, uh, Andrew Lipsman, he currently works at research firm eMarketer, um, but a couple of years prior, he'd done this study, I think it was with Comstat, um, interviewing kind of people 18 to 30. And one of the questions that they had asked was, oh, of all the apps on your phone, which is the one that you can't, couldn't imagine yourself going without? And they had expected, you know, the answers to be kind of like Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, Amazon was the like biggest winner by far. It's the sort of thing that we don't often think about, but Amazon as a shopping platform is kind of ingrained into our digital lives, especially for a generation like Gen Z that is, um, from the be beginning, has been online, is digitally connected, and is uh, constantly aware of the online ecosystem. Right, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting kind of duality there, because in one sense, they're as you know woven into the digital ecosystem as anyone, and yet I imagine part of that, you know, g gathering your opinions through social media, would make you more aware of some of the bigger complaints and criticisms and misdoings of Amazon, right? It's like it, it goes both ways. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think that that kind of feeds into it. I think that's why um, younger people, in particular are more openly critical of Amazon and more likely to in these sort of surveys uh, denote that for the story that I worked on, in our reporting, we found a couple of different surveys of uh, respondents, I guess, across generational lines, and Gen Z overwhelmingly was more negative about Amazon when it came to its environmental impact and impact on retail overall. And I feel like part of the reason why this uh, group is... Um, so much more negative and openly so is because of the media diet that they're exposing themselves to every single day. Yeah. So what do you think this means for Amazon long term? Do you think this is a potential risk for them that, you know, at this current moment, they're so interwoven into people's lives that, you know, even if you're a Gen Z and you think this, you know, Jeff Bezos is the devil, uh, you can't do much about it. But you know, as time goes on and some sort of options become available that they could lose them, that they, you know, they kind of risk a whole generation of people viewing them as as bad as, I don't know, a cigarette company or something. I mean, I think it certainly should be a concern for the company, just in the sense that obviously right now this is quite small and contained and many of the same people who are criticizing Amazon one side are shopping on Amazon the next day. But this sort of negative sentiment it doesn't just exist in a vacuum. I mean, it eventually could lead to more people being open to alternatives to Amazon or um, more people uh, being perhaps interested in creating an alternative themselves. Um, I know at least uh, here in New York where I'm based, um, among Gen Z, a really popular alternative has emerged um, called Cinch Market, or I think they it's a company that just in the last couple of weeks rebranded to shop in 
New York City, which essentially connects all of the different local retailers here through a kind of everything store. And their whole marketing strategy is around shop local, not Amazon. And I feel like the, that sort of tactic could become more common if these sort of sentiments uh, continue. Yeah. What role do you think Bezos plays in all of this? I mean, he's iconic as uh, the richest man in the world. And, you know, he's, he's very relatively public. Um, everyone kind of knows his face. Uh, is he similarly villainized? One thing that I found quite interesting as I was talking to uh, Zoomers uh, about their Amazon habits, um, again and again, um, people mentioned Bezos specifically as being kind of a key figure in their decision to dislike Amazon. I think um, as, you know, his wealth has skyrocketed and his profile has grown along with it, he's kind of become the face of the billionaire class. Paris, great story, uh, as always. Um, thank you for thank you for spending time with Gen Z. Uh, it's, it's a brave journey, but uh, there's so much to learn from them. Um, Gen Z uh, correspondent here, signing right. off. Thanks, Paris. That is this week's episode. Thank you so much for listening. And of course, thanks to Corey Weinberg, Kevin McLaughlin, Paris Martineau, Isabel Tolinar, Ariel Markwitz for producing, and me, Tom Doton, for hosting. Have a good weekend, everybody. See you back next week.